The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Now, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Then there prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, Is is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, They went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took, Peter, he took with him Peter and James and John and, and began uh, to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? 
Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Well, thanks so much, Jimmy. It is really good to be here. Um, as has been said, my name is Joe. I'm the pastor at Rosalie Baptist Church, and I bring a greeting to you from Rosalie. Um, if you're ever on holidays in Brisbane, we'd love to, to see you down there. Um, drop in any day. Um, someone will be at the church, and you can, you can say good day. We're kind of right in the middle of the city almost, um, just near Suncorp Stadium, if you know where that is, if you've been to a footy game or something like that. That's where we are. Um, so a greeting to you from, from our church. Just before I get cracking today, um, a little bit of uh, an overview of what's happening. So as, a, as Jimmy's just read, an epic chunk, chunk of scripture, lots of little things happening there. There's probably five or six sermons we could do. Um, sometimes you might have heard that saying, you can't see the forest for the trees. Uh, so if you spend all your time looking at one, one individual tree, you miss the big forest. So what we're doing today, um, there's a whole heap of trees in this, in this passage but I'm going to just race through, give us a, a glimpse of each tree and hopefully show you what the forest is saying. So that's, that's what we're going to do today. I might just pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the life of your son, Jesus. Uh, thank you that in Jesus we have seen the fullness of who you are. And we see more and more of that in today's passage, Lord. And we pray uh, that you would speak to us by your word, that we would hear what it is you have to say to us and that our hearts would be convicted and encouraged and challenged and ultimately changed to be more like the Jesus that we love, in whose name we pray. Amen. So uh, I have a dog. Um, she should be popping up on screen fairly soon. Uh, her name is Sally. Uh, and yesterday I took my dog Sally to the vet. Um, and one of the things that always amazes me about my dog is her capacity to sense what is about to happen based on what she can pick up from the environment around her. Uh, now, we turn up at the vet, and it's been a year since we've been there, and in fact, normally Becky takes Sally to the vet, and so I've never taken her to the vet before, but as soon as I pulled up across the road, her ears popped up, she looked across, saw the vet, and immediately wanted to go to the vet. She just, I got her out of the car, she pulled on her chain, wanted to race across the road and get to the vet. My dog's one of those weird dogs that actually likes going to the vet. As soon as we got inside the door, she was in, pulling, racing, finds the, the assistant, Gary, who she loves, jumps up on him, paws up, licking his face all over him, all excited. And then she's over to the table where they do the examination, paws up, ready to jump up on the table, all excited. And then I find out why. As soon as she jumps up on the table... Her nose goes straight up to a shelf above the table where they keep the treats. Yep, that's right. She can perceive everything that's going on, know where she is, know what it means, and straight away know something good is going to come. She can also do this when she perceives things aren't going to be good. Uh, before the sky gets dark, before clouds form, before there's thunder, before any drops of rain fall, my dog knows a storm is coming. She just senses it, gets all nervous and skitchy and wants to hide in the back of her kennel. And when we're busy getting ready, 
uh, to go out somewhere. She senses that we're going out and she's going to be left alone and so she gets all sooky. She knows it's happening. She even did this at the start of this year uh, when the girls came downstairs for the first time this year wearing their school uniforms. She saw that and she's like, oh, no more cuddles on the couch all day watching movies with the girls. And she got all sad. Dogs like Sally have this uncanny ability to pick up what is going on in the world around them, to read the room, so to speak, and decide whether things are going to be good or bad, and then they respond accordingly. But us humans have that ability as well. We're generally all pretty good at reading how things are going around us, and we act accordingly. If you go to a party and you get stuck in a conversation that you sense is going to be boring, you're doing anything you can just to find a way to get out of that conversation. If we sense on this weekend our football team is probably going to lose, we start saying things to just distance ourselves from that team a little bit, not really uh, getting any hopes up and, and downplaying their chances of winning. And if we sense that supporting a particular cause is, is going to get, get us lots of social media credibility, we act quickly. We put the right filter on our Facebook profile and we get the hashtags going and, and we jump on board as quick as possible. In many ways, we pl place such a high value on avoiding conflict and being on the right side of society that we get incredibly good at reading the room. This morning, as we examine the uh, series of events leading up to the arrest of Jesus, we're going to see that everyone around Jesus is attempting to read the room, to determine what is coming and position themselves to come out of this whole ordeal okay. And as they do, we will be confronted with the powerful truth of Jesus and something that we need to come to terms with. Because we would be kidding ourselves if we don't think that we read the room when it comes to our devotion to Christ. Sure, here at church, it's a pretty easy room to read. We're singing songs that praise Jesus. Everyone's sort of talking about Jesus. It's kind of expected and good that we would champion our faith in Christ. But when we go to work, or in our neighbourhood, or in our broader family, or in our friendship groups, the room might be a little bit harder to read. We read the room and try and figure out how on board everyone in this situation will be with us having faith in Jesus, and we respond accordingly. This morning we're going to discover the only truth that will empower our allegiance to Christ that can stand in any room, regardless of how we read it. Because all of us know that feeling of not wanting to let the room know that we're a follower of Jesus. We all know what it is to feel like that might not be the best thing to share in this moment. That we might pull back from declaring our faith in Jesus. That conversation that starts up that we just go, red flag, not going anywhere near this, I'm backing off. We need to find something that will help us have allegiance to Christ regardless of how we read the room. Well, right at the start of this chapter 14, Mark makes it clear what is happening behind the scenes. The religious leaders of Israel are plotting to arrest Jesus. 
They've made their mind up a long, long time ago about Jesus and now they're prepared to act on it. But their leadership is so weak that they don't want to cause controversy, so they lay plans to arrest Jesus in stealth. This short statement of their covert plans sets the scene for this whole series of events that takes place in Mark chapter 14. Jesus had entered Jerusalem as the coming Messiah King and the Pharisees had been so deeply offended by that triumphant entry, so deeply offended by his powerful teaching that to them Jesus was just a dangerous heretic who hung out with the sick, who hung out with the sinful and he had the potential to derail their own grip on power. Jesus had to be stopped. And so they made up their minds. They would arrest Jesus and plot his death. Knowing this, Mark takes us on a series of encounters in which the closest people to Jesus have to respond to the fact that he was fast losing favour, that he was becoming a target of the most powerful people in the nation. They have to respond to the fact that Jesus is Jerusalem's most wanted man. And that's what we're going to see. Different people responding in different ways to the Jesus who is now out of favour with the religious elite. Verse 3 finds Jesus doing what Jesus does best, sharing a meal in the home of an outcast. We're not entirely sure who Simon the leper is, Some considered him to be a father or a relative of Lazarus, Martha and Mary, since it was their house that he normally lodged at when he was at Bethany. But one thing is sure, he is identified as the leper, which probably means that he is or perhaps once was a sufferer of leprosy. Maybe he was someone whom Jesus healed. Everything we know about Jesus is that while the elite shunned broken and hurting people like lepers, Jesus embraced them. So here is Jesus in the house of a leper and a woman approaches him and empties a large portion of expensive perfume all over him. Even for Jesus, this is kind of scandalous. Some of his own disciples begin to question him and the woman. It's almost like they're saying, hey, come on, love, read the room. We're all concerned about what's happening in Jerusalem. We're all concerned about this Messiah Jesus and how he's going to triumphantly go in and and restore all things to Israel. And here you are wasting all this money and time with the perfume thing. See, they were mainly concerned about what a lavish waste this appeared to be. They claim it could have been sold for 300 denarii almost a year's salary. Put that in today's money. Let's just go basic wage, year's salary. You know, this perfume is looking at like $30,000, $40,000 worth in the equivalent money today. It's incredibly expensive. And they're worried that this money could have been used and given to the poor. But Jesus actually rebukes them and basically says, guys, she's actually the only one who's read the room properly. For you will always have the poor with you. Whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you'll not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body 
beforehand for burial. The disciples had seen the perfume as a waste, but Jesus prefers to highlight the deeply sacrificial, beautiful and timely act of worship of this woman. In other words, yes, the poor are important, but at this moment, they're not the priority. The sale of lavish perfume could have supported the poor for a moment, but Jesus' death would give them so much more for so much longer. This woman, perhaps moved by the Spirit, recognised the significance of the moment. She read the room. Everyone else is thinking about Jesus being a triumphant king, going to Jerusalem, sitting on a throne, and she's like, he's going to die. He said it, and I know it. And so I will I'll anoint him for his burial. She had listened to him when he spoke of his death, and she had believed him. And so where everyone else is on the complete wrong page, she willingly sacrifices her most precious and prized possession to honour her Lord. It's likely that some poor woman living in Bethany wouldn't normally have access to such an expensive uh, jar of perfume. It's likely this was a dowry. This would be what she would offer a husband in marriage. This, this would pay for her to get married. She is giving up so much to honour and anoint Jesus. Jesus says that this moment would eventually be remembered and proclaimed everywhere the gospel would go. And in a way, in dealing with this text, we're, we're participating in that tradition this morning. She read the room and she saw that Jesus was going to die. And so she willingly sacrificed her most prized possession to honour her Lord. But when Judas saw this moment, he read the room as well. And he thought, maybe I've backed the wrong horse. Verse 10, then, and it's important, then, right then, right at this moment when he sees this lavish waste of perfume, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised him money and he sought an opportunity to betray him. This, this is the moment, the moment where Jesus honours a wasteful woman and once again predicts his death. This is the moment that tips Judas over the edge. He sees that things are fast moving against Jesus, that trouble is coming from the nation's power brokers and that the way Jesus is acting is merely inviting more and more trouble. And so like a rat deserting a ship, Judas agrees to portray Jesus for a sum of money that we know is 30 pieces of silver. Judas had thrown his lot in with Jesus, left his life behind like all the other disciples, but now he felt like he'd backed a loser. A loser who was going to take them all down with him. So he does the only thing he can looks to escape the situation with something to show for it. He looks to get out in a way that will make up for the three years that he's just given up. 30 pieces of silver is his price and he agrees to betray his Lord. The contrast couldn't be more stark, could it? One woman gifts so much to Jesus when she hears of his death. 
when Judas hears he's going to die, Judas is looking for, to get a, a small sum of money to get out of it somehow with profit for himself. Well, things get more and more serious as this text goes on. Verses 12 to 25 recount, recount the events surrounding Jesus' last meal with his disciples. Firstly, and kind of bizarrely, they ask, how are we going to celebrate the Passover? And he says, two, you go into the city ahead, you'll find a man carrying water, and when he enters a house, go in and say, this is the house Jesus wants to have the meal at, where's the room that you've prepared for him? And they go and they find it just as Jesus said. It's a kind of weird request that shows Jesus' divine foreknowledge. But it's not just some weird flex by Jesus, it's designed to remind us that Jesus is in control of this situation. The events about to take place will make his disciples feel like everything has gone completely out of control, that it's just spiralling into chaos. But if Jesus is supernaturally aware and in complete control of small details like where they're going to find lodging for the Passover then he's equally aware and in control of the seemingly chaotic events that will follow. Jesus is in control of this spiralling towards his death events. During this meal, Jesus will drop two heavy bombs on the disciple. Firstly, he reveals that he knows one of them will betray him. And all the disciples freak out, wanting to know if it would be them Surely not me, but Jesus reaffirms that it will indeed be one of his 12 closest friends, one who is sharing this very meal with him. It's not one of the other people out there. It's not one of the other uh, clingers on, not one of the other people who just stood on the side of the road and waved palm leaves as he came into the city. It's one of his closest followers, someone who is sharing bread with him at that table. One of the twelve. Jesus tells them he will be handed over to evil leaders. But for the one who betrays him, the one who is handing him over to these evil leaders, this person has already been handed over to evil entirely. Jesus said it would be preferable for this betrayer to have never have been born. And secondly, Jesus once again describes his impending death, but this time in the most graphic of ways. He gives them bread as a symbol of his broken body and wine as a symbol of his shed blood. The Passover meal, this meal that Jews would celebrate the way that their God redeemed them from slavery in Egypt all, that year, all those years ago, suddenly takes on a whole new meaning. No longer is it a remembrance of the past glorious victory in power over Egypt. It's now a precursor to God's ultimate victory, but a victory that would come through the graphic sacrifice of Jesus' life. You can't think of a more not-so-good table talk topic, can you? A broken body and poured out blood. It's not what we want to talk about at dinner. And yet Jesus drops this powerful image on his disciples, to hammer home what he's been saying for some time now. He will be handed over to evil men and he will be brutally murdered. They finish their meal, they sing a hymn, 
head out to the Mount of Olives where Jesus drops another bomb on them. The Old Testament prophet of Zechariah proclaimed God's word to the people of Israel when they were just returning from exile. He spoke about the coming restoration of all things through God's anointed Messiah. One of his climactic visions is in Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7. And it's of a shepherd king who is struck with a sword, causing all the sheep who followed him to scatter. The image is clear. Imagine a field of sheep being kept safe simply because a shepherd has gathered them close to himself. This is a day before fences, before, you know, all this technology that's used and tagging and GPS stuff. Before any of that, it is a, it is a field that is just open with bushland coming up against it. And there is a small group of sheep gathered around a shepherd. The only thing keeping that sheep together, the only thing keeping those sheep safe is that shepherd. Well, imagine that that shepherd is struck down and killed. He is no longer there to protect the sheep. The sheep do what animals do. Instinctively, they flee. They just scatter. They run away from the danger and with no one to keep them safe, no one to unite them, they are lost, wandering aimlessly. Jesus chooses this moment after the Passover feast as they head to the Mount of Olives on the night he is betrayed. Jesus chooses this moment to tell his disciples that they will be the sheep who are the fulfillment of that prophecy. That he was to be struck and they, his sheep, would scatter. Imagine the confusion and stress that would permeate the hearts of the the disciples. They'd given up so much to follow Jesus. They had seen so many other people turn away, and yet they still remained. They were here with him now. How could Jesus question their loyalty? How could he say they are going to scatter from him? In verse 29, Peter says what all the disciples are thinking. Even though they all fall away, I will not. Not me, Jesus. Everyone else might desert you, but not me. I'm here to the bitter end, Jesus. But Jesus assures Peter that his denial of him is certain. Verse 30, truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. It's like Jesus is saying, Peter, you can pledge your allegiance to me all you want but you won't even last this very night. In verse 31, probably with equal parts offence and passion, Peter boldly refutes Jesus' prediction. If I must die with you, Jesus, I will not deny you. No, Jesus, not me. I will give my life for you. Perhaps Peter feels like Jesus is not making a prophecy here. That Jesus is not speaking with certainty. That Jesus is giving him a test and saying, following me is going to be hard, Peter, don't you know? And Peter's like, I am giving you all of my allegiance. I will die with you. And we're told that all the disciples said the same thing. They all say, we will die with you, Jesus. They confess their undivided, unfailing, till death loyalty to Jesus. Would have been a powerful moment in their hearts where they confess this loyalty. 
but within minutes, that loyalty is lying asleep on the ground. With promises of commitment and fidelity still lingering in the air, Jesus asked the disciples to do one simple thing, sit and watch while he prayed, telling them he was in great distress. Verse 34, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch. Then we told he goes ahead a little further, falls on the ground in anguish and cries out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I, what I will, but what you will. This is the desperate cry of a heart that is in torment. Elsewhere, we're told that in this moment, it was so intense that he was sweating drops of blood as the stress took its toll on his body. It must have been a harrowing moment for the disciples, these men who were committed to follow Jesus unto death, to see their Lord bending under the weight of this sorrow and anguish. But actually, it wasn't. It wasn't a harrowing moment for them at all. Because the disciples, who had only just finished pledging their lives to Jesus, couldn't even watch over him while he prayed in his greatest hour of need. Jesus returns and finds them asleep. And he pleads with Peter, Simon, why are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is not normal Jesus' behaviour. Jesus, the one who had always been so sure and steady, the one who seemed to be able to remain calm in the face of the mightiest storm, the most chaotic demon possession, the most pointed accusation and questioning of his enemies. Surely the disciples saw that he was desperate and broken in this moment tormented by the magnitude of the moment. Surely they saw it was different. Surely they could tell that he was in anguish. Surely his most committed supporters would rally around him. No. Twice more Jesus returns to plead with his, his father and twice more he returns to find his disciples sleeping. He urges them to be alert for him again and again to no avail. And then... It was too late. The moment arrives. Jesus looks up in verse 41 and says, It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And we know, and you'll probably look at next week, Judas arrives with a bunch of people to arrest Jesus and take him off to be killed. On this final night of Jesus' life, the disciples hadn't been able to read the room. They hadn't grasped the tragic gravity of this evening and they've fallen asleep over and over again, letting the lateness of the evening, letting the heaviness of the meal in their bellies, letting their droopy eyes take them away from their commitment that they'd only made earlier. And maybe it's easy to say that you'll die for Jesus but not so easy to stay awake while he is in anguish. I wondered if you've picked up what Mark is doing through this whole chapter uh, of his account of Jesus' life. I wonder if you've seen something of the forest amongst all the trees. You guys have been working through the whole life of Jesus. 
I wonder if you've picked up what's happening here. The religious leaders are seeking to kill him. A faithful woman anoints Jesus for his burial. Everyone gets a bit annoyed at that. Judas runs off and betrays him for money. Jesus once again predicts his death at the Last Supper. Jesus tells the disciples that they will all scatter. Jesus tells Peter that he will betray him. And they all pledge their allegiance. And then they can't stay awake to pray with him in his hour of need. Mark shows us that Jesus' mission team, this powerful group of 12 disciples, is systematically being whittled down. Judas will betray him. Peter will deny him. All the disciples will scattered, And Jesus will be left alone. We cannot miss this point. That in the final hours of Jesus' life, he is praying all alone. They all fall asleep. And when he wakes, wakes them up and his betrayer arrives, they will all scatter And when Peter, who confessed his undying faithfulness to Jesus, the the desire to go to death with Jesus, gets questioned by a slave girl, he caves under that pressure and denies him. Over the next few chapters, Jesus will be handed over to the Jews, handed over to the Romans, sentenced to death, beaten, mocked, scorned, forced to carry a cross to the rubbish dump hill where he will hang naked in agony until he dies. And Mark wants us to see that he's going to do it all alone. The disciples had played their part in the journey so far and they would play their part in the journey that was to come. But as Passion Week winds up, They leave Jesus to his own devices. Jesus takes on the most pivotal moments of his mission all by himself. This is a critical truth that we need to understand because we come from a culture where all our stories of heroes just about always paint them, no matter how supernaturally powerful they are, as heroes who need to discover the value of of their friends, the value of their community. They need to see that they can't do it alone. They need to let other people in and trust them to be part of the mission. Elsa needs Anna, Captain America needs Iron Man, and Harry needs Hermione and Ron. We have been hardwired to think that we all have a part to play in changing the world for the better. But when it came to the mission of Jesus, we need to see that no Not one single person helped him. Not one single person identified with him. Not one single person helped him bear the burden. They couldn't even help him pray before the fact, let alone stand with him while he did it. The shocking truth of the story of the Bible is that for all the faithful forefathers, all the powerful warriors, all the wise kings, all the patient prophets, all the passionate poets, all the armies, all the worshippers, all the exiles, God's salvation of humanity came down to one and one only. One Messiah, one man, one man alone in the place of punishment. One God taking responsibility where every other person had failed. We must face the fact that none of us participated in our salvation. 
We are all the sheep who have scattered. We are all the sheep who have gone astray. Only Jesus stood alone in the place of our punishment. And that's because none of us were able to do what Jesus did. If we think back to those agonizing hours of prayer in the garden, we get a glimpse of what awaited Jesus. And we see why it would have to be him and him alone who embraced it. In verse 36, he prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus had been sharing his foreknowledge of his impending death with his disciples for some time now. And it had been in a matter-of-fact way. I will be handed over to sinful people and I will be crucified and I will rise on the third day. Jesus has been telling them clearly and calmly that he would die. But here, here in this garden, he feels the weight of what awaits him. He's told them that he would be mocked. He's told them that he would be mistreated. He's told them that he would be murdered. All at the hands of sinful men. So why all of a sudden is he freaked out at the thought of dying? Is it just the nearness of this death that plagues his thoughts? Is it just he's coming to terms with the pain that he would feel in his body? Is it just the physical act of dying that he longs for his father to take away from him? I don't think so. There are people who are far less impressive than Jesus who have embraced suffering and death for causes that they believed in. Many of his followers would go on to do it. The, the apostles, you know, they would go on to die for Jesus. What about the apostle Paul who said things like, to live is Christ, to die is gain. From everything we know of Jesus, we don't get the impression that he's the kind of man who would just balk at the thought of physical pain and death alone. If we look carefully at Jesus' prayer, we see he prays for a cup to be taken away from him. He prays for a cup to be taken. And this is interesting imagery. Now, we could think that Jesus is maybe just saying, the cup means my lot in life, just what I have to do next. But the Old Testament is full of instances where this cup imagery is used of something far more specific. Psalm 60 verse 3, Psalm 75 verse 8, Isaiah 51 verse 17, Isaiah 51 verse 22, Jeremiah 25 15, Obadiah 16, all speak of the cup being the cup of God's wrath. The cup is the righteous anger of God against the sin of humanity. The just punishment for human rebellion. A cup that God would pour out in judgment against all those who stood opposed to him. A cup that would mean destruction for any sinner who was even caused to drink one single drop from it. This means the cup that Jesus is wrestling with is not merely the pain of crucifixion, but the righteous anger of his Father against human sin. See, Jesus' death was not just a symbol of love for us. It was not just a way to open our eyes to see how far God was prepared to go to show his love for us. 
Jesus' death caused him to drink the cup of God's wrath reserved for all those who had rebelled against God and to drink all of it. That's why he had to do it alone. That's why he had to stand alone. Only the sinless Son of God could endure the agony of the cup of his Father's wrath. And it is this knowledge that while we were helpless, while we were unable to stand, while we were ignorant and turned our backs on him, when even his own disciples scattered and denied him, Jesus stood alone in our place to die for our sin, to die for the wrath that God righteously feels against our sin. This knowledge and this knowledge alone can empower our allegiance to him. Get this, the most dedicated to Jesus are not those who have the strongest displays of faith or the most righteous looking lives. They are those who have most fully accepted this truth. I was unable to stand. I was weak. I was broken. I was guilty. I deserved the cup of God's wrath. And yet Jesus stood in my place. Jesus took my place in punishment. Jesus drank the cup that was reserved for me. It's this knowledge that should cause us to follow in the footsteps of the woman with her perfume. To sacrificially give what is most precious to us to honour our Lord. When you read the room at work, You get the idea that claiming faith in Christ will make you seem like an ignorant fool. Let the truth that Jesus stood alone in your place and paid the price for your sin empower you to hold fast to him even if it costs you your reputation because your reputation is nothing in comparison with the cup that Jesus drank in your place and the fact that you no longer have to drink it. You might lose face at work, but you will never lose the freedom that comes from having Jesus drink the cup of wrath in your place. When you read the room in a relationship and you get the idea that living out an active faith will be a turn-off to your partner, and if you want to stay with them, you will need to simmer down your passion a bit and just embrace a nominal faith. Let the truth that Jesus stood alone and drank the cup reserved for you burn within you, even if it makes you walk away from the potential of a relationship. A relationship is worth nothing compared to the fact that you have been set free from the cup that Jesus drank in your place. And when you read the room in our current culture and you get the idea that Christians are fast looking like we will be on the wrong side of history, let the truth that Jesus stood alone where we all had abandoned him and died the death of a shamed criminal, empower you to humbly cling to him and bear the shame of cultural exclusion. Because being called regressive, being told you're on the wrong side of history, that is nothing compared to having that cup drunk in your place by Jesus, to having that wrath removed by the only one who could do it. This is the stunning truth. This is the forest that Mark wants us to see. That Jesus 
his mission team got whittled down to one. Systematically, they all betrayed him, denied him and scattered from him and left him to die alone. Why? Because he was the only one who could. He was the only one who could withstand the wrath of his father, bear that shame in death and rise victoriously from the grave. Let that truth empower you to cling to Jesus no matter how you read the room. Let's pray. Father, it's with heavy hearts that we recognise that as much as we sing your praise, as much as we would declare our allegiance to you here this morning, that we know that we're fickle. That there are times where we feel the situation out and we say, no, not today. I'm not going to claim Jesus today. Not in this situation, it's too hard. We all know that fear. We all know that shame of burying our faith in the world of our private life rather than holding it, clinging to it, proclaiming it, living it, rather than sharing it. We know that we are like the disciples, Lord, who with one breath can proclaim undying love and the other breath fall asleep. We know we are like Peter who can be passionate for you, to dig his heels in and say he'll be there forever, but at the first sign of danger deny you. We know we are like the disciples, Lord, that when the betrayer arrives, just scattered, that we would flee from you, given half the chance. Lord, we need to see what your son has done for us, all by himself, alone on the cross, bearing your wrath against sin. The wrath that I had stored up, he drank in that cup for me, in my place. Lord, let me see that truth. Let me see that he has taken my place in punishment and let it empower my allegiance to him. Let it empower our allegiance to Jesus. Let us cling to him because he is the one who clung to the cross for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others, but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.